Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. This is Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. This week, producer Amy Keene and I are working on a couple of projects. So we are going to play for you an encore episode of our chat with economist Sebastian Edwards, plus a bit of updated bonus material. So Edwards, uh, if you don't remember or if you didn't listen to that original podcast episode, was one of the pioneers in the systematic study of economic populism, along with his longtime collaborator, Rudy Dornbush. And this was a really fun chat that we recorded in February, but... Because that was not long after Donald Trump had been inaugurated as president, we didn't have as much evidence as we do now about the extent to which Donald Trump would actually follow the pattern of economic populists in the past, the ones that Edwards and Dornbush have, in fact, studied. So we're going to play for you that episode again. And then after the replay is finished, I'm going to give you a few of my thoughts on this point about whether or not, at least to this point, Donald Trump has, in fact, been following those patterns of previous economic populists. Here it is. Uh, Sebastian, thanks for joining us. Hey, I'm excited to be here. Hi. Let me start by uh, talking about um, your early personal interest in uh, populist economics. Uh, You yourself are Chilean. How did you first start becoming interested in the economics of populism? Well, um, anyone that was born in uh, Latin America and is interested in economics um, unavoidably ends up uh, sooner or later, sooner in general, uh, worrying about uh, populism. Um, uh, The early work started uh, when um, Alan Garcia took over the presidency of Peru for the first time. There's Alan Garcia I and Alan Garcia II. And Rudy Dornbusch and I were absolutely fascinated by the disregard that Garcia had for anything that uh, resembled good economic uh, policy and how uh, he just wrecked Peru. And we said, well, this is uh, one more manifestation of a more general phenomenon that uh, comes back again and again and again in uh, Latin America. And we decided then to write our first paper, um, an article where actually we compared Alan Garcia to Salvador Allende in Chile. Yeah, Garcia was the uh, 1980s. Right. And Allende was in the early 70s, from 1970 until the Pinochet coup in 73. And then we started working on other cases, uh, Peron in Argentina, Getulio Vargas uh, in Brazil. And so we built a body of work uh, and then convinced others to start working on populism. And then we did a book. And so that was a a long time ago. Yeah, I, I recently moderated a panel about the Mexican political and economic outlook. And something that the panelists said, and also a few people in the audience, was that Americans have been taken off guard by 
some of the phrasings of Donald Trump and some of what he at least says is part of his agenda, but that if you're from Latin America, you've sort of seen how a lot of this movie plays out before. That is correct. You've seen it uh, before. The modus operandi is uh, very similar, and it's very ironic. On the one hand, you have uh, Donald Trump, and uh, the way he approaches many of these issues are not too different to what uh, Hugo Chavez did in Venezuela. And uh, and, and that's exactly what makes the, this whole story quite fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So before we actually get to Donald Trump, which I think we're going to sort of save uh, for the end of the conversation, I want to get into some of the basics. When you talk about populism and populist leaders, what definition are you using? Because I get the sense that the word populism is sometimes used differently by different scholars and by different people, and there's a lot of talking past each other. That is correct. So Rudy uh, Dornbusch and I define the economics of populism as economic program, a, a package of policies that disregarded good, solid, received wisdom on economics. And uh, in the case of Latin America, which is going to be interesting when we compared it to Donald Trump, disregarded all budget and monetary constraints and violated all those constraints, uh, and the populists do, in a way that generates euphoria in the immediate short run, but ultimately uh, results in a very deep crisis that affects in particular those that were supposed to be benefited by the whole program. So uh, populist economics is an economic policy package that disregards budget constraints, macroeconomic uh, constraints, good, uh, solid uh, productivity constraints, and uh, generates uh, short-run benefits at the cost of crisis in the future. Yeah, I, I got the sense that a big part of that also was a kind of disregard not only for the principles of sound economic management, but for the existing institutions in place that are supposed to enforce those principles. That is correct. So those are the policies, what I described. And what the populist leader does then is that in a rhetoric uh, that is quite uh, extreme and where he or she uh, divides the population between us, the people, and them, and it's vague them, and we'll get to that in a minute, in that rhetoric, the, the populist leader takes the discourse directly to the people through big rallies, referenda, plebiscites. I'm talking about Hugo Chavez and Donald Trump, uh, who continues to be, although he's now the president, in campaign mode. And uh, in doing this, skips the institutions, both at the economic level. For instance, uh, they tend to dislike the central bank because it uh, is an institution uh, that tends to maintain uh, sound policies in most countries. Uh, first thing that Hugo Chavez did was fire uh, Mrs. Ruth de Crivoy, the governor of the Central Bank of Venezuela, right? So they disregard the institutions, uh, both uh, economic and political. That is absolutely right. Yeah, I, there, there's something else that's interesting about your work. Because you've spent so much time studying Latin America, it turns out that the majority of the populist leaders you've studied have been left wing, right? A lot of Marxists in there. 
And it's interesting to me that in your work, you don't actually look at populism as a left-right issue. So can you sort of uh, elaborate on how that works? Uh, yes, these uh, false uh, promises that the populist leader offers to the people uh, may come from the right or from the left. Uh, in some way, Peron, who had uh, great sympathy for the fascist uh, movements, he was a great admirer of uh, Benito Mussolini, was a right wing in, 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 many, in many respects. Uh, so there is no reason why we cannot have uh, corporate right wing populist leaders that uh, favor uh, specific groups in their rhetoric and in their uh, policies. And again, very clearly blame, in quotation marks, the other for the suffering of us, the people. And in the case of Latin America, often the other was related to some foreign uh, force, uh, the multinationals, international speculators, and of course, the International Monetary Fund. And what is very ironic is that in the case of Donald Trump, and very interesting, uh, of course, foreigners also are blamed for the plight of the people. And in this case are immigrants, uh, the Chinese, um, and uh, international Terrorists. Yeah. Okay. Let's go through uh, some of the findings of your work. And let's start by talking about the conditions in place that uh, usually precede the rise of a populist leader. Well, yeah, the first phase is a deep public uh, dissatisfaction and discontent. And this uh, dissatisfaction and discontent is of two types. Uh, sometimes it's quite abrupt. And in Latin America, usually that uh, abrupt crisis has been associated historically with a very large devaluation of the currency. So we go back to Argentina, 2001-2002, peso, dollar, one-to-one -one for 10 years, and all of a sudden there is a huge crisis and the currency goes from one peso, one dollar, to three to four pesos, one dollar. And, and, and that generates a very deep sense of dissatisfaction, of betrayal. So there is the crisis. In other cases, the crisis sort of develops much more slowly, and um, uh, it's a simmering crisis. And that is what we can see in the United States, where there's this simmering dissatisfaction, uh, in particular among white, blue-collar workers. So first uh, phase, uh, great dissatisfaction. And, 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 and you can see it in country after country after country. Venezuela, Caracaso, um, and, and, and the big riots. Argentina, the big uh, devaluation. In uh, Peru, the failed presidency of uh, Fernando Belaunde after the return of uh, democracy. And we can go on and on. And in the case of the U.S., is income stagnation, wage stagnation among a large group of uh, manufacturing uh, sector and natural resource producing people. Um, I'm thinking of coal in West Virginia and Kentucky and, and, and so on. The second uh, phase is uh, the emergence of this populist uh, leader, very charismatic who operates outside of the political institutions in general, he or she, mostly have been uh, men, does not have a political party or is a newcomer into politics. So uh, Peron comes from the armed forces. 
Alan Garcia has a political party, the APRA, but the APRA um, in Peru has been outlawed for so long that has not played a role. Chavez comes uh, from the military. Rafael Correa in Ecuador, he's a technocrat. He has a PhD from the University of Illinois. Um, so he's been a technocrat that has been completely outside of the uh, traditional political system. Evo Morales, same thing. Um, now, Donald Trump, of course, disconnected and, in fact, disliked by the, the... So this leader that comes out is extremely forceful, very articulate, and in uh, rallies and uh, in direct appeal to the people, um, uh, sort of uh, provides this very nationalistic rhetoric and uh, gets the people to approve this particular political program that disregards all sorts of constraints of good, solid uh, economic uh, management. And uh, either you cut yourself off from the International Monetary Fund, famously Peru uh, stopped paying uh, its uh, debt to the IMF, one of the few countries in the history of the IMF. And in uh, this first phase, there is a fantastically positive reaction in the economy. Uh, more so in Latin America than what we're probably going to see in the U.S., because what the Latin American populist leaders do is that they blow out the international reserves that the country has. And uh, they fix the exchange rate at an artificial level, and everything is good while they are spending all the reserves that they have for that particular time. And then comes the crisis. The fourth uh, phase is the crisis. Right, right. Before we get to that, that next phase, I'm still talking about like the conditions that lead to the emergence of a populist leader and a populist economics. Um, you mentioned wage stagnation and dissatisfaction. What about uh, income or wealth inequality as a precursor to fomenting a lot of the anti-elite sentiment? That, of course, goes with it for several reasons. Uh, most of these crises have uh, a different effect on different social uh, groups and income groups. And uh, again, if we go back to the work that uh, Rudy and I uh, did uh, originally, if the crisis uh, has a nature of very high inflation and eventually a large devaluation, the upper classes, of course, have moved all their money into dollars or foreign currency and then moved it to Miami banks, banks in Miami or Panama. Um, so they are protected from the crisis. Uh, so there is a dissatisfaction that is uh, much stronger among uh, lower income people, which is also the case in the U.S. The Argentine crisis is uh, of 2001-2002. Uh, which uh, resulted in the successive uh, presidents uh, and uh, ended up with Dualde and the uh, long Kirchner presidency, um, uh, Nestor and then uh, his wife, uh, was particularly severe in terms of income distribution. And the poor in Argentina suffered uh, very significantly uh, during that period. Okay, so we have this first phase that follows the enactment of populist economic policies, right, where the economy gets a big sugar high, essentially. And you, you mentioned that in the case of Latin America, they start blowing through their FX reserves. They start exploding their budget deficit, right? What happens next? So here is where the story probably is going to depart and, and, and it's going to play a little differently 
uh, in the U.S., but what, what has happened in, in Latin America and in other parts of the world, uh, uh, Russia, Turkey, um, I mean, it's, it's very generalized, is that as the uh, international reserves uh, are depleted, then the country at some point cannot import uh, goods anymore using the very cheap currency uh, value. And usually the first step is that the price of um, gasoline and uh, all related goods uh, is hiked. Um, and that results in the price of public transportation going up, and that results in riots. And there are jealous riots, who, and, and we saw that in Caracas, we've seen, seen that in country after country after country, that as soon as the price of public transportation is doubled, sometimes it's tripled, then uh, the population becomes very, very unhappy. It is a direct uh, hit uh, to their pockets. And there are manifestations uh, and or riots. And of course, the populist leader continues to blame the international speculators and uh, price gauging by the elite um, and so on and so forth. Uh, the IMF may come into the country, but the populist leader says they want to impose on us austerity and we're not going to accept that. We've seen that in Africa um, again and again uh, for ages. And this gets prolonged until uh, politically it's uh, untenable and something happens. And in Latin America, many times that something uh, was a coup d'etat. And the military stepped in and uh, there were people killed. And at the end, there was a lot of repression. And the poor, who were supposed to be the, those that would benefit from the populist program, end up uh, uh, being much worse off. Yeah, there's a there's a nice point made uh, in one of your early papers with Rudy, where you write that the problem with the outcomes that you described, in addition to what's obvious, is that capital can flee, but labor is trapped in the country. In other words, the foreign investment that might have been necessary to keep propping up these asinine policies can turn around and leave the country and leaving nothing left there for investment. But the workers themselves have nowhere to go. They're stuck there. And so the people who were supposed to benefit end up losing out the most. And that is related, um, of course, to what I was saying earlier in the sense that the rich um, always have a way of um, putting their money in uh, Miami banks uh, or, or when it came to Cyprus, uh, they move the money to Greece um, and they protect themselves. Yeah, no, it uh, invariably leads to uh, a very sad outcome. But what, what is very interesting is that, as uh, as we said, and as you uh, reminded me, capital country, the people are trapped, uh, but they try to get out. So the saddest picture to the eye in Buenos Aires in the early 2000s were the lines of professional young people uh, in front of the Spanish uh, the Spanish crisis had not occurred yet. The Spanish and Italian embassies, people that were trying to uh, emigrate from Argentina, trying to get around the fact that they were trapped there. Let, let's talk about something that uh, you alluded to earlier, uh, but that might also be a part of the U.S. story, uh, in addition to having been a part of these Latin American crises, which is the degradation of the rule of law 
Um, in other words, when you talk about going around the institutions, ignoring them, one of those institutions is just the simple faith and confidence of the people who invest in uh, these businesses in Latin America and in the U.S. Uh, when you see the leaders of these businesses either being berated by a political leader or in the more extreme cases of Latin America, in some cases nationalized by the government, it ends up undermining dramatically the faith and confidence in all of the remaining businesses. And eventually you get into a situation where nobody wants to do business in your country because nobody has any faith in the legal architecture. Right, that is correct. So one of the most important um, aspects of, of capitalism is that uh, it should be quite impersonal. And all companies should be treated uh, by the authorities equally. Um, and that, of course, is translated in international trade to the most favored nation, where every nation should get national treatment. And what we see in many of these uh, populist experiences in Latin America is that the authority starts picking up on specific uh, companies, firms, conglomerates, and the strongman or the strong woman, Cristina, in Argentina, would call the CEO or the controlling figure um, of that company and would threaten him or her personally or would denounce that company in public uh, rallies and would indirectly direct uh, the mobs to riot and to uh, maybe even break into those, those, those stores. And then they are called in and they are said, you have to reduce your prices or you have to do this or you have to do that. And you have to uh, raise uh, wages uh, by 50% while at the same time uh, you cannot increase the prices of your product. Which, of course, it's a variant of what Trump is doing with companies that want to invest uh, and start plants uh, in other parts of the world. So the rule of law and in particular the impersonal treatment equal treatment of everyone in front of the regulators and so on and so forth starts uh, to disappear. And since the populist leader maintains himself in power by uh, feeding this notion that there is this foreign force outside uh, the country uh, that is trying to keep the people down, uh, he needs this, these enemies, and, 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 and it's a little bit uh, um, unavoidable. And, and again, we can see the parallels with what is uh, happening right now in the U.S. with uh, Donald Trump. Yeah, it seems, by the way, like uh, your definition of what constitutes economic populism is similar to a definition I've seen of political populism that's been recently advanced by a political scientist named uh, Jan Werner Mueller, um, where he says that it's not enough— for someone just to be anti-elitist, the real key is that they are also anti-pluralist. In other words, that they identify either people or entities, companies outside of the quote-unquote true people, right? And those entities and people have to be delegitimized because only that populist leader has access to the real feelings and the real needs and the real wants of the people. And the people are, of course, however he defines them to be, right? It is uh, very, uh, very similar in that in that regard. And, and uh, um, there is this notion, the populist leader uh, presents himself as illuminated and being able to see through clouds and through um, all sorts of impediments, uh, including political parties, uh, the legislature, the Supreme Court, 
the central bank, uh, the budget office, and see through, and then uh, able to um, undertake particular policies that are going to solve everyone's problem. And of course, it doesn't happen like that. Checks and balances are gone quite early on in the Latin American populist experience. It happened in Turkey. It happened in Russia. I don't think it's going to happen in the U.S. I cross sure. my fingers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to, to give you a couple of other examples where Trump seemed to be leaning in that direction, although it's really hard to tell right now how far he would go. In addition to the tweets that you mentioned where he criticizes specific companies for not you know, going along with his agenda, we have to remember that he said during the campaign that elections are legitimate if he wins, but they're rigged if he does not win. The media that praises him is fine, but if not, then the media is the enemy of the American people. Those are his words, you know. The intelligence community is okay if they're digging things up on Hillary Clinton, but if not, then they're like the Nazis, right? Again, from a tweet of his, I'm not just saying that for exaggerating effect, right? And so what, what's hard for me to tell is whether or not he's using these tactics from the populist playbook to try to further his agenda because he's seen that they work, or if he himself actually has ambitions to go that far or to test the limits of those institutions to see how far he can go. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, there are two alternatives, either the level of ambition and uh, uh, desire to grab power is much greater than what any of us imagine, or the level of knowledge of U.S. history and how institutions function in the U.S. is very low. I, at this point, think that it is uh, the latter, that, that there is a deep degree of ignorance uh, in terms of the way uh, the system uh, works. I mean, if you go back, I'm, I'm writing now a book about uh, uh, what happened in the U.S. in 1933, which is when uh, uh, FDR uh, came to power. Uh, and uh, the Democrats had an, an incredible majority in Congress. And after the 1936 uh, 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 election, it was uh, absolute in, in every sense. But yet, FDR had to act according to the institution. And when he tried to pack the Supreme Court, it was his own party that turned against him. And Senator Burton uh, Wheeler uh, was the one that led that effort, uh, who was a populist uh, from the Midwest. So I, don't th I think a check, checks and balances um, go uh, uh, early in the populist experiences in Latin America. And I, I, I suspect that President Trump uh, does not quite understand that there are severe limits to executive power. Sure. You mentioned earlier, uh, going back to the economics, that you suspect that in the U.S., uh, the outcomes of these populist, uh, I guess, tactics or these populist attempts will play out a little bit differently from the way they did in Latin America. I totally agree with you, but the, let me first just ask uh, how you think it will differ from what happened in all these different Latin American uh, instances. Yeah, well, I mean, very important uh, is that I think that independently of any uh, desire, attempt, or effort by uh, President Trump, uh, the Federal Reserve will continue to be the Federal Reserve. It's a, a very uh, important, uh, solid uh, institution. Uh, it's uh, about 100 years old. It was founded in 1913. 
and uh, we are not going to see the kind of disregard for good economic policy that resulted in the huge inflations uh, in uh, Latin America. So uh -huh. I think that that's uh, the first thing. And the second thing is that the U.S. has judicial review and the judges interpret what the Constitution says. Uh, uh, and that's very unique of the United States, and that's not the case in Latin America. And it's much easier to fire judges or pack the courts. Cristina Fernandez in Argentina packed the court uh, several times. I, I want to stay with this um, idea, though, that institutions are probably stronger in the U.S. Not probably. They certainly are stronger in the U.S. Uh, than they were in Latin America and thus better able to handle you know, whatever, uh, whatever testing of their limits the Donald Trump presidency, you know, attempts. In terms of the Federal Reserve, I, I actually do worry a little bit, not that the Federal Reserve is going to be overthrown or anything so dramatic, but that because the Republicans are in office now, uh, that there might be some kind of an erosion of its independence, especially if Janet Yellen starts to raise interest rates faster than Donald Trump might want her to if he tries to pass some kind of a large fiscal package, if they actually manage to get that through, and that then she starts raising rates and either he starts packing the Fed with what you might call political appointees. In other words, he'll slowly politicize the Fed um, or the Republicans actually manage to pass some kind of audit the Fed bill, right? That's one thing that I do worry about a little bit. The second is that if he ends up passing some combination of infrastructure spending and a large income tax cut, which was included both in his uh, campaign proposals and is part of the Republican proposals that were offered last year, that it'll be, like in the 2000s, quite a regressive tax cut, and that if it blows out the deficit, that it'll limit the political maneuverability to combat the next downturn, right? That's another thing that I worry about a little bit. But finally, I think my, my biggest worry is that he continues on this path of berating companies, that he takes this approach that seems both corporatist and cronyist, that something else will come out that will just lead to a slower diminution of faith and confidence in American markets. And it could come from all kinds of places, right? The most recent example I can think of is that tourism is going to slow down because of these executive orders on immigration and on the so-called Muslim ban, and that that's worrying a lot of people that they just don't want to travel to the U.S. because they feel like it's going to be unpleasant, which makes sense. Uh, and then finally, that it'll sort of overturn uh, longstanding norms of abiding by large multilateral institutions like whatever, the WTO, that will have a slower kind of protectionism, which is itself bad for the economy in the long term. So it might even produce a short-term wage boost to, to lower-skilled native-born workers if you have less immigration or if there's even emigration, right? And so I, I worry that it's a, it's a slower but still significant erosion of the norms and traditions that have made the U.S. economy uh, strong in the past. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I think that, that uh, you have a very strong point there. And as I said earlier, the dissatisfaction in the U.S. is more of a simmering type. And it has built through uh, a long time. And it's not like explosive as it happened uh, in Argentina, for instance, with the devaluation at the end of the uh, De La Rua presidency. Um, and in the same way, I think that the erosion uh, in the U.S. Uh, will be much slower than in Latin America, as you pointed out. Um, and, I, and I agree with you that all of those are issues to be worried uh, about. 
But my main concern is protectionism. But still, it's unclear how it is going uh, to play itself out. Uh, it's not uh, impossible to think that uh, NAFTA is going to come to an end, for instance. And that's pretty unilateral. I mean, they have to give notice, and then first there has to be some attempt at renegotiating. But uh, I just came back from Mexico, and the degree of uh, anxiety among political leaders of any party, uh, PRD, uh, uh, PRI, PRI, and the PAN in Mexico is uh, much, much higher than what um, most people uh, imagine here in the U.S., uh, so protectionism, I think, is the way uh, this will play itself um, out. I don't know, however, if we're going to see the border tax adjustment. It's just too complicated. I don't know if um, Trump himself understands it. If we insist to go in going that way, the WTO is going to say no, and we may try to pull out or ignore the WTO. So again, erosion of institutions. And uh, there we will see uh, that there will be pockets of wage boost or uh, one town or another town in the Midwest that will get a thousand jobs or 355 jobs because some company decided not to go to Mexico or actually to uh, invest, uh, I don't know, in uh, Michigan or, 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 or somewhere. But of course, the final uh, effect is going to be very negative for the lower classes uh, in the U.S. I mean, Basically, Walmart prices will, I don't know, will double. And um, the rich uh, don't shop in Walmart. They buy Ferragamo suits and Hermes ties uh, in Paris. Now, the tourist uh, effect that you mentioned is a very interesting one because that is one that Trump will understand. And uh, I am not sure uh, if he owns properties that are subject to the very high seasonal demand for help. But, but of course, he does uh, understand how uh, hotels in Aspen and in Sun Valley and in Deer Park and so on, where the elite goes and, and plays during the winter, they can only function because they have all these foreign people that come and work there. That come from all over the world. I mean, from Iceland, from Sweden, from Norway. I mean, these are not only brown people coming from Mexico. And 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 definitely, at every level, uh, be it sort of run-of-the-mill, middle-class uh, the type of uh, facilities in Vegas, all the way to um, the big uh, uh, resorts in Jackson Hole or wherever it is, are going to suffer um, uh, from the kind of approach that he's taking towards immigration. And, and, and I think that, that that is going to be very interesting. So he will understand that he will get his friends and associates, his sons, telling him that this is going on. And I don't know how he's going to react to that. Yeah, it's a good point that right now all of these things are hypotheticals. These are things to be worried about. They are not exactly certainties, in part because Trump is himself such an unusual figure that it just makes it hard to know how quickly he might change his mind on a bad idea. 
if he gets enough pushback from the right institutions. There have been a few hopeful signs in that regard, some of them coming uh, you know, from the national security apparatus within the U.S., uh, that he is amenable to uh, getting rid of the people that you know should never have been there in the first place and replacing them with people who are a little more qualified. I don't know how that'll, how that'll take shape in the economic realm. But my last question, I guess, is you've studied so many Latin American leaders. Which one does Trump remind you the most of? Well, I don't think that uh, there is one particular person that comes uh, to mind. Which combination of leaders and which traits does he have in combination? Well, his uh, nationalistic view reminds me, um, of course, of uh, Peron in some regards. The um, uh, anti-migrant approach is absent in most of these Latin American populist experiences. Large uh, migrations uh, within Latin America um, have been rare in history. There was a very large migration out of the southern cone into Venezuela, for instance, uh, in the 1960s and 70s. But these were all middle class or upper middle class professionals, engineers, doctors, um, lawyers and so on and so forth. And there was no pushback uh, in Venezuela because of the, the oil economy was doing so well that they needed these people. Uh, what we're seeing now uh, in terms of rejection of migrants, uh, it's coming out of Chile. But no one imagined that because Chile has been so successful and it has become such a wealthy country in relative terms that now there are um, a lot of people that come from Haiti and, and Colombia and Bolivia, and, and there's some pushback in Chile. So, um, yeah, I would say uh, some uh, Peron, the rest is, is difficult to point him down. Someone may say that he has some resemblance to President Piñera from Chile because they are both very wealthy. Uh, but Piñera understands economics. He has a PhD in economics from a so-and-so university, from Harvard. Uh, so uh, he does understand economics. And Trump, uh, although he went to Wharton, doesn't seem to really grasp what's at play here. Sebastian Edwards, your most recent book, I said earlier, was Left Behind Latin America and the False Promise of Populism. Uh, what's the title of your upcoming book? The title of my, my upcoming book is Broken Promises, and it deals uh, with uh, 1933 in the U.S. and the abandonment of the gold uh, standard and what the large devaluation of the dollar, which was very Latin American in style and in magnitude. The dollar was divided by almost 50 percent. That's very sort of Argentine. What were the consequences for income distribution, for politics, uh, for the investment uh, community, for financial markets, and so on? So it's a long book on only one year, uh, and I've been having a great time working on it. Yeah, that was a hell of a year, though. (laughs) It was a hell of a year, and there were lots of good things. Uh, The New Deal started, lots of bad things. Hitler. Yeah, indeed. Sebastian Edwards, thanks so much for being on. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. It was very good. Hey everyone, it's Cardiff again in the present day. So, here are the follow-up thoughts that I promised at the top of the show. First of all, on protectionism and economic isolationism, uh, it does seem that, at least to this point, Sebastian's framework was in fact right and useful for predicting uh, the way that Donald Trump would act. So, if you think about the treatment of refugees, the attempts to restrict even legal immigration, 
the more aggressive deportation policy, and of course, most recently, what appears to be a willingness even to end NAFTA if it can't be entirely renegotiated, plus the recent attacks on the World Trade Organization, including the blocking of appointments to vacant openings within it. So on the issue of protectionism, it looks like Edwards was right. Second, on the typical populist attempt at spurring a growth boom, here I think the record is mixed and, of course, incomplete because we're still not that much into the Trump presidency. So Trump's efforts to cut corporate taxes, the deregulatory push in a number of industries, the attempt to cut taxes overall, the potential wealth effects from rising asset prices in the stock and housing markets, these could all be seen in this light. And thus far, it does seem like economic growth has picked up slightly. And yes, the stock market continues climbing. It seems like we get a record high every other day. But there's a lot of nuance here too. So for one thing, how much of the trends I just described, the pickup in growth and the stock market booming, how much of that can be attributed to anything President Trump has done is a bit dubious. There are other causes involved here too. Uh, For another thing, one of the single biggest economic decisions that the president still has to make is the selection of a Fed chair. And if he chooses someone who favors a steeper path for rate hikes than the path we're expecting now, he might see his boom go away right quick. Third, on redistribution. Well, you could interpret his brand of protectionism as an attempt, and I emphasize the word attempt to distinguish it from what the actual outcomes would be, but an attempt at geographic redistribution, trying to help the heartland rather than the coasts. Uh, And it's targeting the workers in certain sectors like manufacturing, mining, for wage gains, even if it has overall a deteriorating effect on the economy's long-term potential. But I got to say, for the most part, on redistribution, President Trump frankly seems to be doing the opposite of traditional populists. As Sebastian has shown, these traditional populists, even though they ignore sound economic fundamentals, at least in the short run, they do try to boost middle class wages. But the gains, for instance, from Trump's proposed tax cuts would go largely to people with higher incomes and more wealth. And I say that, by the way, independently of any partisan belief on whether that's fair or not. I'm just noting the estimates of what his tax plan is likely to do if it gets passed. The same goes for his attacks to this point on Obamacare. So when some critics of Trump's economic policies, people like my colleague Martin Wolf, when they refer to the president as a Pluto-populist, this is what they're talking about. President uses populist language, but in fact, these policies would not be very populist at all. But one final point, these critics are also referring to the conflicted business interests of President Trump and the people who work for him. That hasn't changed. The tolerance of dodgy business dealings by the people associated with his campaign and presidency, not to mention the Trump organization itself and some members of his family. So a real open question here is the extent to which older norms The norms of a presidential administration enforcing standards of propriety and decorum for the people who work in it, including, of course, the president himself, there's a real question as to whether those norms will be recovered after what have frankly been some quite flagrant violations. I don't really have an answer to that question. And that is the end of this week's Encore episode with some bonus material. We hope you liked it. We hope you enjoyed it all again. If it's the second time you've heard it, thanks for listening either way. And please give us a call at 917-551-5012 or email us at alphachat at ft.com. To get show notes for this episode, dig into the archives at ft.com forward slash 
Alpha Chat. You'll find it back in February. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes. Uh, it really does help people find out about the show, and we see every single rating and review, so we really, really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to the amazing Amy Keen, producer and editor of Alpha Chat, and thanks to you, our listeners. We'll see you here next week for a brand new episode of Alpha Chat. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM.